0: Uh, we're going to be in a, a little bitty book in the Old Testament called Ezra. If you want to find it, that'd be wonderful. We're going we're to be uh, in our Bibles flipping a little bit today. So if you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to keep it open on your lap. 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Ezra. There we go. <clears throat> Uh, we're in Ezra chapter one, and uh, we're just going to read, oh, the first eleven verses or so. In the first year of Cyrus, King of Persia, I'm sorry, in the first year of Cyrus, king of the Persian, uh, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go and rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver and gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered." Cyrus, the king, also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithradath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, a 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers. 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and a 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. And now, O Lord, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us, and that you would show us yourself in your word, and that you would show us ourselves in your word, may we be changed by what we see what we know not teach us what we have not give us what we are not make us it's in jesus name that we ask it amen so i don't know if you are sort of aware of where this story fits in the larger story of the people of god Um, So I'm going to do just a little very quick background for you. Um, The children of Israel had been told by God, if you will walk with me and keep my commandments, I'll protect you from all of your enemies. Um, And they didn't do that. And uh, in the midst of all this, they had a civil war and they split from one nation into two. And the northern nation was known as Israel and the southern nation was known as Judah. Judah. And God repeatedly warned the northern nation, who was not not walking closely with him, and they were doing false worship and all kinds of weird things and and worshiping foreign gods. He warned them over and over again, and you can read in the Bible the the books of the prophets, for instance. uh, Amos was one that God took out of the south and sent up to the north to tell the king to cut it out and straighten up, and they didn't. And so God sent the Assyrian army, the Assyrian empire, and they conquered that land and they carried all those people off. That was 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. They carried all those people off to somewhere. We don't know exactly where. We know what the names of the rivers, and, uh, but it's apparently sort of in the area where Iran and Turkey and Armenia and Georgia and all that come together, and they're just lost to history. They just disappeared as a people. They assimilated into the cultures around them. And then God looked at the remnant, the little tiny nation of Judah in the south, which was two tribes, and he said to them, you guys aren't doing much better, walk with me, or I will do the same to you. And they didn't walk with him. And so God said, all right, I am now going to remove you from the land, but it's not going to be the the kind of permanent destruction that the 10 northern tribes experienced, because I'm going to preserve a remnant. And so I'm going to remove you from the land for 70 years. And and then at the end of 70 years, you can come back and replant and reestablish things. And he said this through the mouth uh, of the prophet Jeremiah in particular. And sure enough, here comes now. It's a different empire in charge. The Assyrian empire had fallen. It's been a few hundred years. And now it's the Babylonian empire. And they're the most powerful empire on the planet. And so they come, and they are interested in getting at the Egyptians, and Israel is in the way. And they conquer uh, Judah, rather. They conquer Judah, and they carry almost all the people off. They left the very poorest of the land to work the land to keep it from going back to a wild state. But most of the people they carried off, including all the intelligentsia and the leaders, and they carried them to Babylon, which is in Iraq today. And there they were and God said, now you're going to be here for a while, so settle down, build houses, plant gardens, uh, get involved in the civic affairs, but walk with me and worship me in your exile. This was a very shattering experience, because one of the things that happened, they said, there's no way God's going to let these pagans destroy the temple that's in Jerusalem, and God said, oh yes I will, and he did. So their whole sort of worldview was shattered and it it really created a great wound on their collective psyche that lasted for centuries but at the end of 70 years it's time to come back and now the Babylonian empire has fallen and there's a new empire and it's called the Medo-Persian empire and Cyrus this gentleman that we read about is the emperor of the Medo-Persian empire and so we pick up our story today When you you contemplate the situation surrounding the exile of the people of God in Babylon and their return to the land of Judah and to Jerusalem and to the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the city and the city walls of Jerusalem, it becomes apparent that this is a highly complex situation and that many individual actors had to make many crucial decisions for things to work like they were supposed to work. And they had to do it in the right way, and they had to do it at the right time. And, and this all had to happen in order for God to accomplish his plans and his purposes. Uh, the exiles that were in Babylon needed to remain a separate group of people and a coherent group of people distinct from the other nations around them and the other peoples who surrounded them in Babylon. And and this had explicitly not happened to those 10 tribes that had been carried off uh, in 722 BC by the Assyrians. They had been lost to history. Those are the 10 lost tribes of Israel. And the reason they're lost is because They just stopped worshiping God and just started behaving exactly like their neighbors. And they were carried off and said, well, this is where we are now and this is who we are now. And they just ceased to exist as a separate people. They just intermarried and became one with the the people around them. That couldn't happen to these exiles in order for God's purposes to be fulfilled. They needed to retain their religion. And they needed to make sure that they didn't syncretize and and blend their religion with the religion of their neighbors. Even when they had occupied the land, this had been very difficult for them to do. They kept wanting to worship God and Baal. They kept wanting to worship God and Dagesh. They kept wanting to worship uh, God and all these other foreign gods because they were not confident that their god was the right god. And that he was strong enough and capable enough to handle the things that they were concerned about. So they were kind of seeking out specialists among the foreign gods. And they said things like, well, you know, our God is a God of the mountains. But hey, we're living down here in the valleys farming. So we need a God that's like a valley God. The, the mountain God, our God, God most high, he's a mountain God. What does he know about farming? So we, we, maybe we better worship Baal. Because, you know, he's the specialist for the farmer. And so that was their thinking. They didn't, have, they didn't see how big God was, and so they didn't have confidence in him. And that was one of the reasons that God had judged them in the first place and sent them into exile. So now they're in exile. It's going to be an even greater temptation to blend with these other gods. There had to be a, a mighty king. This king, who was perhaps the most powerful man on the planet, he had to notice this little group of exiles who lived amongst the representatives of the dozens and dozens of nations which he had governed and ruled. And not only did he have to notice them, he had to care about what happened to them. And not only did he need to care about their plight, he also needed to decide that the best thing for them would be to return to the land of Judah. Now, this was no inexpensive operation. And so money had to be found to finance things. Now, this people, by this time, had lived in Babylon for 70 years. That's three and a half generations, as the Bible defines a generation. And though they sometimes had incurred the dislike of their pagan neighbors, we see that in, for instance, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3, and we see it in the book of Esther, Yet, even in the midst of those infrequent persecutions, they had prospered there. They had built successful businesses. Uh, The synagogue had been invented during that time. So there was now a religious life, and they were able to instruct their children in the things of God. Uh, These people, these Jews in exile, had arisen to positions of influence and power in government. And so you have men like Daniel, who was an advisor to kings. For, for those who had been born during this time, Babylon was all that they had known, and only the oldest of them had any memories at all of life in Judah. And to return to Judah might also incur the wrath and the displeasure of the pagans whom Nebuchadnezzar had allowed to settle in that area after he'd removed the Jews. Those who had, and then there were those who had kind of wandered in on their own. It's like, hey, free farmland, we're going to go take that. So almost from the beginning, when these exiles get back into the country, they're opposed by these people. We see this in the book of Ezra, and we see it in the book of Nehemiah. Returning also meant suffering and hardship and hard work and uncertainty because there wasn't like a, a, a hotel they could stay in. You know, they were going to have to go there and start from scratch. And so there was really every reason to stay in Babylon and not very many good reasons to go back to Jerusalem at all. From a human perspective, the obstacles to accomplishing this seem almost overwhelming. For that reason, I think it would be beneficial for us to take a few minutes together and see exactly how it did happen. First, I want you to notice that when I read in the book of Ezra, in Ezra chapter 1, In verse 1, what the Bible says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing. Now, Notice what the writer says. In the first year of Cyrus, Cyrus was a Persian. He was from what today is Iran. And he was a Persian king. He was a a co regent. He ruled together jointly with another king, a man named Darius, who was of the tribe of the Medes. And the Medes and the Persians were allies. And the Medo-Persian Empire had conquered Babylon and then conquered the entire Babylonian Empire. And God had done that expressly as an act of judgment upon the wickedness of the Babylonians. And you find that story in Daniel chapter 5, verses 13 through 31. And that's the famous story of the king having his feast. And all of a sudden the hand appears and starts writing on the wall. And the king doesn't know what it says, but everybody's really freaked out and terrified. And so they bring Daniel up and say, we'll make you a rich man if you can just tell us what that says. And Daniel says, you can keep your money, you're toast. That's what it says, king, you're toast. And that very night, the Persians and the Medes actually snuck in under a gate that had been put up to block the the river Uh, block access from the river, the Tigris River, when it flows through Babylon. They had snuck under that gate because the water was low, and they came into the city and surprised everybody. And that night, the city was conquered and laid low. Darius was about 62 years old when he conquered Babylon. And by the time of the writing of the book of Ezra, he's quite an old man. And he is kind of retired and he's kind of king in name only. He's a figurehead. He, he left the administration of his kingdom to Cyrus, who was a much younger man. So the phrase, in the first year of his reign, refers not to his rule over the Persians, but rather his assuming of control over the Babylonian Empire. So Cyrus takes the throne. And it's important. And here's why it's important. He takes the throne exactly 68 years after the first captives were deported to Babylon. 68 years. Now, if you've got your Bible, I want you to find the prophet Jeremiah. And I want to show you something. Because this is really remarkable. I mean, I don't know how you could disbelieve in God after seeing things like this. As a matter of fact, the liberals have to make this up and say, well, this must have been written afterwards because nobody could write this before it happened. So let's just set the stage here. Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 1 through 14. This is Jeremiah's writing in the time when Jerusalem is about to be attacked by the Babylonians. And he's telling the king, hey, king, the Babylonians are about to attack you. The Jewish king. And the Jewish king is like, you're an idiot, go away. You're depressing the people, don't talk about it. And they, they persecute him. And so here's what Jeremiah says. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. That was in the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For 23 years, from the 30th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken it persistent to you. In other words, for 23 years, God's been telling me to tell you this, and I've done my job. And you ain't listened. You've had 23 years to repent, 23 years to get ready for this. You are not listening to me, but you have not listened You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and his evil deeds and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given you and your fathers from of old forever. Do not go after other gods and serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands, and then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations, and I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years." Then, after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, and I will make the land, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in the book which Jeremiah prophesied against the nations. For many nations and great kings shall be made slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, who said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of the wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And they shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So God saying before the fact, I've warned you for 23 years. You haven't listened to me. I'm going to bring you down into destruction. I'm going, to ra- I'm going to destroy everything in the land. And I'm going to carry you off to Babylon for 70 years. For 70 years, I'm going to do this. Now, fast forward in the book of Jeremiah to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29 to verse 10. This is probably the most popular verses uh, in the book of Jeremiah that we would know. We would recognize this almost immediately, most of us. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. That's still true today. You will seek him and find him when you seek him with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. One more text in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 30. Verses 1 through 10. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord. And I will bring them back to the land that I gave to your fathers, and they shall take possession of it. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic and of terror and no peace. Ask now and see. Can a man bear a child? It's amazing we have to ask that question today. Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? and Why is every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great, and there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, and he shall be saved out of it. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I raise up for them. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, For behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. So God says, I'm going to bring you back, and I'm going to establish you again, and I'm going to take care of you. Now there's one more passage that we need to look at. And it was our call to worship this morning, but it's quite amazing. And if you've got your Bible, turn to Isaiah, which is the, just before Jeremiah. So go backwards a book. Isaiah 45. Now, Isaiah wrote about 150 years before Jeremiah. Isaiah 45, verses 1 through 7. Thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus. Wait a minute. This is 250 years before Cyrus came on the scene. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hoards in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by name. I name you, though you did not know me. I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun, from the west, there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form the light and I create the darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now this was written... 200 years before Cyrus was even born. And it calls him by name. And it says to a man, a pagan man, a pagan king, I anoint you as my anointed to do a job, a task that I have tasked you with to do good to my people. And in order to bring you into a position to do that, you're going to conquer everything you're going to run it all. I'm going to give it to you, and I call you by name. Listen to the the first century Jewish historian Josephus on this. It's wonderful. Josephus writes, Josephus uh, lived uh, about, oh, 80 AD, so The church is young, the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed, and Josephus becomes sort of the official Jewish historian for the Romans to explain this bizarre group of people, the Jews, to the Romans. And this is what he writes. In the first year of the reign of Cyrus, which was the 70th from the day that our people were removed out of their own land into Babylon, God commiserated the captivity and calamity of these poor people according as he had foretold to them by Jeremiah the prophet before the destruction of the city, that after they had served Nebuchadnezzar and his posterity and after they had undergone that servitude 70 years, he would restore them again to the land of their fathers, and they should build their temple and enjoy their ancient prosperity. And these things God did afford them, for he stirred up the mind of Cyrus and made him write this throughout all Asia, Thus saith Cyrus the king, Since God Almighty hath appointed me to be king of the habitable earth, I believe that he is that God which the nation of the Israelites worship. For indeed he foretold my name by the prophets, and that I should build him a house at Jerusalem in the country of Judea. This was known to Cyrus by his reading the book which Isaiah left behind him of his prophecies. For this prophet said what God had spoken thus to him in a secret vision. My will is that Cyrus, whom I have appointed to be king over many and great nations, send back my people to their own land and build my temple. This was foretold by Isaiah 140 years before the temple was demolished. Accordingly, when Cyrus read this and admired the divine power, an earnest desire and ambition seized upon him to fulfill what was written. And so he called for the most eminent Jews that were in Babylon and said to them that he gave them leave to go back to their own country and rebuild their city, Jerusalem, and the temple of God, for, that would be their, for he would be their assistant. And he would write to the rulers and governors that were in the neighborhood of that country of Judah, that they should contribute to them gold and silver for the building of the temple, and besides that, beasts for the sacrifices. Now, Can you name who's going to be president 250 years from now? Can you tell me who's going to be president 250 years to the day from now? That's exactly what God did. And he even had somebody rummage around and find all the gold and the silver and the bronze bowls and the dishes and the platters, which had been part of the furnishings of the original temple, and he ordered them to be restored. All of this is amazing, of course. And to understand this and to believe it will greatly strengthen our faith. But there's a phrase in here that's even more pertinent to you and to me today. In verse 1 it says, in Ezra chapter 1, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia. And again in verse 5, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go to Jerusalem and to rebuild the house of the Lord. How does God accomplish the two most difficult things to get this task done? How does he get Cyrus to order the release of the captives? And how does, he go, how does God cause the captives to rise up and leave everything they had known and all the prosperity they had enjoyed and leave it and go to Jerusalem for hardship and difficulty? Did he force them? No. Did he threaten them? No. He stirred up their spirits. The spirit is the will. He implanted a new desire in them to do that which he had purposed for them to do. And then he let them go forward according to that desire. These were free choices, but God had brought them about. You see, this is how change in a human being works. You get a new desire, and that new desire manifests itself as a new will, which leads to new actions. Now, here's the takeaway. Friends, I think we honestly believe that God is in charge of everything except the actions of those people who are closest to us and who make our lives miserable with their desires and their choices. God's in charge of everything except my mother-in-law. God's in charge of everything except my husband. God's in charge of everything except my nasty next-door neighbor who will not behave himself. God's in charge of it all, but I'm scared to death of what my child is going to do. God, I believe you're in charge of everything except my wife, or my husband, or my daughter, or my son, or my brother, or my sister, or my father, or my mother, my boss, my neighbor. All of these people, God, seem to be operating on a whole other plane, and you don't seem to have any effect there. These people are stubborn, they're willful, they're hurtful, they're blind, they're shallow, they're unthinking, they're selfish, they're unloving, they're angry, they're self-absorbed. And they've been that way for years, God. And I've been wanting them to change. I've been telling them they need to change. I've been trying to change them. They seem to be quite beyond your ability, God, to do anything with. I've watched you bring tragedies into their lives that I thought would truly break them and change them, but they remain exactly as they have always been, and it is painful for me to be in relationship with them, and I can't figure out how to get out. Sometimes you can get to the point of a kind of a numb despair. You think that God, you don't think that God can do anything for them. Here's the message of Ezra chapter 1. You cannot effect any real and lasting change on another person. You can't. You cannot change another person. You can probably get them to do what you want for a little while. But you can't get them to pick up the ball and run with it as though it was their idea. You probably can't get them to do what you want them to do at all, most of the time. But God can. God can. And he can do it in a moment's notice. He can stir their hearts. He can stir their spirits. He can implant within them a new desire. And as a matter of fact, he is the only one who can. If he can change the heart of an arrogant, proud, powerful despot and move him to free a people and to finance the expensive rebuilding of a temple in a city then he can change your spouse. He can change your parent. He can change your child, or your boss, or you. He can change you. Let me me just close, we've got some wonderful advice from a a medieval, early medieval monastic. Uh, His name is uh, St. John of the Cross, I believe. Is that right? No, Thomas Akempis, I'm sorry. Thomas Kempis. Listen to this. This is his good advice. He says, until God ordains otherwise, a man ought to bear patiently whatever he cannot correct in himself and in others. Consider it better thus. Perhaps to try your patience and to test you, for without such patience and trial, your merits are of little account. Nevertheless, under such difficulties, you should pray that God will consent to help you bear them calmly. If, after being admonished once or twice, a person does not change, do not argue with him, but commit the whole matter to God, that his will and honor might be furthered in his his servants. For God knows well how to turn evil to good. Try to bear patiently with the defects and the infirmities of others, whatever they may be, because you also have many a fault which others must endure. It's amazing how blind we are to that. You also have faults that many others have to endure. If you cannot make yourself what you wish to be, how can you bend others to your will? We want them to be perfect, yet we do not correct our own faults. We wish them to be severely corrected, yet we will not correct ourselves. Their great liberty displeases us, yet we would not be denied what we ask. We would have them bound by laws, yet we will allow ourselves to be restrained by nothing. Hence, it is clear how seldom we think of others as we do of ourselves. If all were perfect, what should we have to suffer from others for God's sake? But God is so ordained that we may learn to bear one another's burdens. For there is no man without fault, no man without burden, no man sufficient to himself, nor wise enough. Hence we must support one another, console one another, mutually help, counsel, and advise. For the measure of every man's virtue is best revealed in time of adversity, adversity that does not weaken a man, but rather shows what he is. If you can't make yourself what you want to be, and you can't, then how in the world are you going to fix other people? Go to God. Fall down before him. Commit these things to him. Leave the person and their problems in God's hands. And be at rest. And from that posture of strength and rest, do whatever you can to serve them. And to love them. And to wait for God to move. And God will move. He will move in his time. He will move in his way. He will move. And you will grow. Amen. Amen.